from this morning uh, and what I'm wanting to do tonight I'm going to begin to preach and teach through the book of Jude for a little while now I realized the Sunday night before we left to go to Israel that uh, I had started preaching about the early church well I haven't forgotten that we will get back to that but what is important right now in the time that we have and important and this time period in the life of our church is to understand the book of Jude. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Now, I will use several different translations as we go through the book of Jude. I will sometimes preach from the King James Version. Other times I will quote from the ESV. And then there will be other times I will also quote from the Greek New Testament to explain some words as we go. Uh, the book of Jude is a very powerful book. Folks, I believe it's a, it's a book that is needed greatly in the day and age in which we live. Now, one of the reasons, and I had not planned this, this come about this afternoon, one of the reasons that we are going to go through the book of Jude in a continuation, kind of, from this morning is because I was asked a couple of questions about the sermon this morning. And I have always said this, if one or two people ask a question, there's probably 10 or 12 more that would like to ask a question but do not. So if someone asks me a question, I'm going to do the best I can to explain that to them. Now, I want to start by saying this. I had somebody say, Preacher, you was kind of intent, intense this morning with the message you preached. Yes, I was. Folks, I want you to understand something. I hate the spirit of apostasy. I hate liberalism. Now, I'll say that right up front. In, in front of everybody, if you know me, you ought to know that by now. To me, liberalism is a parasite. Liberalism has never built anything of any significance. It just slithers into colleges and universities, churches, denominations that have, built, have been built by Bible-believing Christians on God's Word, the foundation of God's Word, and liberalism slips in and takes over. That's what has happened in our country for years now. That's what's taking place in many denominations and many churches across our country today. Now, with that being said, that's one of the reasons that I want to continue this thought about apostasy tonight. Now, we're not actually going to get into uh, dealing with apostasy and defending the faith, which is what Jude's talking about. And to, by way of introduction, I'll tell you, when, when I was a kid, uh, I run around with some other boys. We had the idea we wanted to be boxers when we grew up. Now, that was back before all this MMA nonsense. When it, it was actually boxing, it was actually a sport, and there was some art involved in it. And we used to box at a place over on Choctaw Road and 29th Street in Oklahoma City. And uh, a friend of mine, actually, he became a pretty good boxer. He, he became a professional boxer, and, and uh, he became a firefighter as well. And we had a lot of fun boxing. But, uh, you know, I never, I was okay at it, but I wasn't as graceful as some of them other guys. Uh, you know, some guys lead with their left, some guys lead with their right. I led with my face, and it, it didn't work out very well. Uh, 
But I did learn some things in boxing, and I still to this day, I love boxing. I love the sport of boxing, real, real boxing. Uh, two things that young fighters always have to learn the hard way, it seems. Number one is to not telegraph your punches. Don't have a tail because if somebody knows it's coming, they're going to defend against it, you're going to leave yourself open. And that leads to the second problem. Don't telegraph your punches and keep your hands up so you don't get hit in the face. That second one was one of my big problems. <clears throat> when I threw a punch, it was a good punch. If I threw right, I dropped my left. Well, somebody knew what they was doing. If you threw right, drop your left, they were going to hammer the left side of your face. I got hammered quite a bit. So I learned you need to keep your guard up, keep your hands up. Well, uh, the theme, I guess, for the entire book of Jude, now it's to believers, and what Jude is saying is, you need to keep your guard up. You need to keep your hands up. On guard. Now, Jude is one of the smallest books in the Bible. Actually, I think it's the third uh, smallest book in the New Testament, but it illustrates the truth that uh, big things come in small packages. Because even though Jude is a small book, it packs a great big punch. And what Jude does is he tackles head-on what I believe to be probably the greatest issue and problem facing the church today. And that's the problem of apostasy. Now, Luke, he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. I think you could say that Jude, he wrote the Acts of the Apostates because he talks about it so much. Now, let me answer this question. What is an apostate? Well... To put it clearly, to put it uh, succinctly and simply, an apostate is a counterfeit Christian. An apostate is one who professes salvation, but they don't possess salvation. The word apostasy, folks, it literally means a turning away or a falling away. Now, Paul predicted this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The Greek word for depart that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 4.1 is a word that gives us our word apostasy. Now understand, the devil, he has two methods of attacking the church. One is this, he'll first off, he'll attack by the persecution of the faithful. He'll persecute the saints. The second way that Satan will attack the church is by perversion of the faith. And I want to tell you something. History shows that the church is in far more danger from the second problem, that is having the faith perverted, than they are from the first problem. Now keep that in mind. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray tonight that it will be very clear that we, uh, we need to be about your business. We need to be sharing the gospel with all those that we can. But Father, we also need to be standing firm in the faith and defending the faith. We need to stand firm on Your Word. And Father, we need to, without any doubt, we need to explain, to teach, and to show a world that is misguided the true gospel and the truth of Your Word. Not what the world is believing now, not the perversions that Satan has twisted and so many people are caught up in, but we need to defend the gospel, defend the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. I pray we would take this message, these studies to heart, and we would be willing to be your soldiers on the front line for the battle 
of the faith. In Christ's name, amen. Now, folks, years ago, and we was talking about apostates or apostasy, years ago, I remember coming across an example of someone who I consider to be an apostate. Now, this individual, he happened to be president of a Baptist university at the time. He happened to be a Baptist preacher at the time. And he wrote a book. Now, if I told you the school, everybody here knows it. If I told you the name of the guy, you would probably know him as well. But he wrote a book detailing his understanding of Jesus, his understanding of the Bible, and the truth of Christianity. Now, the reason I'm using this illustration is because I don't want you to think, well, this apostasy, this liberalism, it affects these other denominations, not us. Oh, no. It affects us as well. It affects many Baptist churches today. Well, this guy, again, president of a Baptist college, wrote a book. Now, he's supposed to be a Baptist preacher. He can't preach for sour apples. Couldn't preach for sour apples. How could he? I don't believe he is saved, so it's kind of hard to preach. You're not saved. But he wrote a book detailing his understanding of Christ, the Bible, and the truth of Christianity. And in that book, I believe that he gives the three elements or the three marks, folks, of every apostate. If you're taking notes, write these down. Number one, an apostate pretends to speak for Jesus, but denies the deity of Christ, denies his unique deity. For instance, this man, again, who was supposed to be a Baptist preacher, and he was the president of a, of a, a Baptist college, says he loves Jesus, he knows Jesus, but he says this about Jesus. He says, like Israel, our first temptation is to make Jesus into an icon of devotion. We want to see God. We want to touch God. We want to clutch God. We want to make sure that God belongs to us. So we make Jesus into an object of worship. Let us not make Jesus into a magic fetish. Jesus is God speaking to us. Now listen to what he says. Jesus is not God. Christians seem to become remarkably troubled <coughs> Excuse me, about whether Jesus is humankind's only Savior. Is Jesus God's only Word? The simple answer to that is... Absolutely not. Now, folks, you heard me preach from Hebrews chapter 1 a few weeks ago. What was God's final word to mankind? Jesus, the living word. In these last days has spoken to us by his son. So we know good and well that this guy's way off base to begin with. Understand, one of the first marks of an apostate is they'll deny Christ's deity. Secondly, an apostate pretends to believe the Bible but denies its authority. This is what he said. This Baptist uh, university president, this preacher, he said the simple identification of the Word of God with the Bible is a grave mistake. It is not an absolute authority. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the authority of Scripture. They deny that the Bible is God's Word. Thirdly, an apostate pretends to stand for truth, but they deny the reality of truth. Listen to this quote. The truth of the Christian faith, if there is any truth to the Christian faith, is that God is on our side. Now suffice it to say, folks, there you have it. That's apostasy in a nutshell. They deny the deity of Christ, they deny the authority of Scripture, and they deny, folks, the reality of truth. They don't, they don't grasp absolute truth according to God's Word. Now Jude says that against these imposters, against these deceivers and charlatans, we need to keep our guard up. 
Christians, we must be defenders of the faith against those who are pretenders of the faith. Look at verse 3 of Jude. And you probably know this verse. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you, now listen to this, and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now why are we to earnestly contend for the faith? He answers that question in verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were born of old, ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That means uh, grace as a license to sin, okay? And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we are to defend the faith. Does that make sense to you? Now, folks, it may seem that uh, as your pastor, that I, I may be a little overboard on this issue. I assure you I am not. I'm not. The danger of apostasy, the danger of liberalism, is that it's so subtle. It's so subtle. It's kind of like, uh, there was a guy when I was at the fire station, he used to come and teach us uh, every year. He lived in Edmond. He would come and teach us about uh, poisonous reptiles, snake bites and things like that. And he'd always bring those snakes with him to teach us. That guy had been, uh, he had been bitten so many times by every kind of poisonous snake that we have around this part of the world. I asked him one time, Bobby, do you ever get sick? He said, oh, no. He said, uh, the real stuff don't bother me. He said, over the years, I've built myself up with a synthetic antivenom. And he said, I would take a little bit every week for a couple of years. He said, now the real stuff don't even bother me. That's the danger with liberalism and apostasy. You get built up and immune to it. And the real stuff don't even affect you anymore. We have a whole generation of people who are crowding around and following all kinds of, of deceivers and apostates. I don't have to mention their names. You know several of them. I've hammered on them before. Not going to do it again. Okay? Now, I want you to understand this. Jude tells us we're to be defenders of the faith. Now, it's not coincidental. Notice the first two verses in Jude and the last two verses in the book of Jude. It's not coincidental that those verses all deal with our eternal security as a Christian. Now, why is that important when we're talking about defending the faith? Well, the reason for it is this. And I want to warn you right from the start, if you're not sure of your salvation, if you're not secure in your salvation, if your faith is not strong and sturdy and steadfast, then as we study the book of Jude, it's liable to rock your world with some doubt. So because of that, that's why Jude, before he speaks to us as a prophet concerning apostates and defending the faith, which we'll get into more next week, what he does first is speak to us as a pastor. And he gives every true Christian three reasons, folks, why we can be sure that we're secure. And the first reason he gives is that we're, as Christians, we're guided by spiritual light. Look at verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now I want you to notice something. That word called there... That's the last word in the sentence in the King James. Now, in the ESV, and I think the NASB, and I don't know about the NIV, it's not the last word. 
But I like the way the King James does it because in the Greek text of this passage, the word called is the last word that's used. Now, when I bring that up to you, and the reason I bring that up to you is because of this. Whenever the Greeks in their writing, when they wanted to emphasize something, they were not like the Hebrew writers who would repeat things. Instead, the Greek writers, if it was of significance and importance, they would list it last of all. That's what Jude's doing. That's the reason I brought that up. Jude wants us to understand that everything that he is about to say about us and that's true of us as believers is all based on the calling of God. Now keep that in your mind. Look at that word called again. It refers to an official summons. Actually, the Greek word that's used, it speaks of a summons that should not be ignored because it's a summons from a king or from an emperor, or from some high up government official. And originally, it referred uh, to how someone would be summoned or called uh, to fill an office, to assume an important duty, or to take a position. So the thing that Jude wants us to understand is that salvation begins with the call of God. That's how it all starts, folks. Now, I hope you realize this. Salvation does not begin with a sinner. It begins with a Savior. Now again, the reason Jude, I think, is pointing this out right from the start is because he knows what he's about to talk to us about concerning apostates, concerning false teachers. He knows that that is liable to rattle some Christians. So he says, I'm going to give you something right up front so you'll know that you're secure. If you're truly a believer in Christ, you're secure in your salvation. Salvation, again, it begins not with a sinner, it begins with a Savior. Now, I don't know about you, but I, for one, I'm glad that it does. The Bible says in Philippians 1, 6, that he who has begun a good work in you, Paul says, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, <coughs> if I started my salvation, I might not finish my salvation. But I assure you, anything that God starts, God is going to finish. And salvation always starts with the calling of God. Now, Somebody might say, they might say, well, the Bible, doesn't it say in Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved? It absolutely does. Certainly it does. But I want you to know this. Before you will call on the name of the Lord, you must first be called by the Lord of the name, or you won't call on Him. God calls you before you call Him. Let me give you this illustration. Say uh, mankind has a phone here on earth. God has a phone in heaven, all right? Either one can call the other one. Neither phone, though, is going to ring until God picks up the phone and is the first one to dial. Does that make sense? Salvation begins not with man calling on God, but it begins with God calling on man. I heard about a preacher, and I used, to, I used to think this way. Preacher, he was asked to explain the doctrine of the calling of God. He said, well, it's like this. He said, the Lord always votes for man. The devil always votes against man. And how man votes breaks the tie. Now that sounds real good, folks, but it's flawed for this reason. If it was left up to man on his own to vote, I think we ought to know from what I preached on this morning, if it's left up to man to vote, then he's always going to vote with the devil and he's always going to vote against God. Now i got good news for you. If you're one of those who voted for God, then it's simply because God first voted for you. That's why you voted for Him. That's what the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 19. We love Him, why? Because He first loved us. So salvation from beginning to end is all of God. Now somebody else say, wait a minute, preacher. Uh, what about faith? Doesn't faith come from us? 
Yes, it does. But you know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus Himself is the author and the finisher of our faith. Nobody put it better than the Apostle Paul. Let me share this verse with you. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Spurgeon, he says this. One time he wrote this in his memoirs. He said, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all by myself. And I, I, I thought that even though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea that the Lord was seeking me. Then the thought struck me. How did you come to Christ? And I told myself, well, I sought the Lord. He said, then I asked, but how did you come to seek the Lord? He said, then the truth flashed across my mind in a moment's time. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence on my mind to make me seek Him. I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that He was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace then opened up unto me. I desire to make this constant confession known. I ascribe my change, my salvation, wholly to God and God alone. If you're saved, it's because God called you first. Plain and simple. So we're guided by spiritual light. God calls us. But also, secondly, we're governed by sovereign love. Look at the next phrase in, in verse 1. In the King James Version, it says, Sanctified, sanctified by God the Father. Now, that, that's a great... Uh, Folks, that's a great statement, but an unfortunate translation. Because the best manuscripts actually, instead of sanctified, they have the word beloved there. We are God's beloved. Now, somebody may object at this point and say, wait a minute, God loves everybody. We're not the only ones God loves. Now, listen to me. That's true, but here's the difference. That's what I want you to understand. That's the reason I think that the, the word beloved is a better translation from the Greek text. Folks, the sinner is loved by God. But as Christians, as His children, the saints, we are beloved by God. Let me explain this to you. Generally speaking, I love all women, but there's only one woman that's my beloved. That makes sense to you? God, we're His beloved. Now, He loves everybody, but there's a special love. We are beloved by God. Now, the verb, look again at verse 1. The verb that's, that's used there, we're beloved by God. It's in the perfect tense. I've told you before, that's the strongest tense in the Greek language. The perfect tense refers to action that's completed in the past, that's continuing in the present, and that's committed to continue on in the future. So if you want to be technical, you could translate it this way. We have been beloved by God in the past. We are beloved by God in the present. We will always be beloved by God in the future. There's no ending to it. Now folks, we've all heard that God loves us. But I actually wonder, how many of us really understand how special that love is? Let me tell you something, Christian. Don't ever take for granted that little phrase, God loves me. You see, God loves us in a, in a way that we can't fathom at times. God's love is different from human love, and it's different three ways. Let me share it with you. First of all, God's love is immeasurable. The Lord Jesus Himself told us how much God loves us. He said, uh, if He hadn't said it Himself, I, I don't know if I'd have believed it or not. But in John 17, 23, listen to what He said about how God loves us. He says, I in them, and you in me, 
that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and now listen to this, and have loved them as you have loved me. Did you catch that? God loves the saint as much as He loves the Son. Now folks, I want to ask you a question. How can you possibly measure that kind of love? I mean, it's, in, it's immeasurable. How does God, the Father, how much does He love God the Son? Well, the fact is, folks, He loves us as much as He loves Him. So what that means is, His love uh, for us, it's all equal, but it's also all complete. So I understand, preacher. There was a widow lady who had three sons, and she, uh, she passed away. After the funeral service, the lawyer handed each one of those boys an envelope. And there was instructions with it. Open this only in private. Well, each one of those boys took the envelope that their mother had given them, and in private they opened it up. Each one had a letter in there. And each one of those letters had the same message. It said, Son, I love you the most. Listen to me. That's what God says to every one of us. He says, I love you the most. He loves each one of us completely. He loves each one of us totally. Each one of us equally. Somebody wrote these very poignant words, this little poem. It says, How good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend, whose love is as great as His power and knows neither measure nor end. So believer, listen to me. You want to know about your security, your salvation? God loves us immeasurable. But secondly, God's love is also uh, it's immutable. Now what I mean by that is nothing you can do will ever change God's love for you. I think I've, I've used this story before, but there was a guy who used to brag in his neighborhood about how much he loved children. He bragged all over the neighborhood about how special children were to him and how much he really loved them. Well, one uh, Saturday, he poured a new driveway at his house. And when he finished working <coughs> that day, he went in the house to let the concrete dry and settle. Well, when he did, a bunch of kids from the neighborhood come by. Well, you know what kids are going to do in wet concrete. They put their hands in it. They wrote their initials in it. Some of them stepped in it. Others of them, they put toys in it. Well, it hardened that way. The next day, the man, when he came out of the house, he exploded. He was upset. Well, every time he saw the children in the neighborhood, he'd run them away from his house. He would scream at them. He was mean to them. After a while, one of the neighbors said, I thought you loved children. The man said, well, I, I do love them in the abstract, just not in the concrete. Well, listen to me, folks. Here's the good news. God loves you and me either way. He loves us. It's immutable. I want you to understand this great truth. I've shared it with you before, but if you don't remember it, write it down. Nothing bad you could do could make God love you any less, and nothing good you could do could make God love you any more than He loves you right now. Isn't that great? His love's immutable. It's immeasurable. But also, here's the third thing. God's love is immortal. God's love is not some kind of fickle love. It's a forever love. You remember what John, uh, God said to Jeremiah in the Old Testament? He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. He says, uh, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God loves His children. And listen, as God's children, we're guided 
by a spiritual light. God has called us. We are governed by a sovereign love. God loves us in ways that we can't imagine. We are His beloved. But the third thing I want you to see, we are guarded. We're talking about eternal security. We're guarded by a saving life. Look at verse 1 again. It says we're also preserved in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus, some translations say. I want you to notice that preposition in, that can also be translated as by. It can also be translated as for. So, you could say we are preserved in, by, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at that word preserved. That's one of the Jews' favorite words. Uh, it's used five times in this book. He used it here in verse 1, twice in verse 6. <coughs> he used it in verse 13 and again in verse 21. Sometimes it's translated keep, sometimes translated reserved, sometimes it's translated preserved as it is in the King James. But it literally means, that word in the Greek literally means carefully watched over, strongly guarded, or looked after and caused to continue. Folks, that's a powerful word. It's the same word that Peter used in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 where we're told that we have an inheritable... Uh, an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's the same word that's used there. Now, this is what I want you to get down into your heart. When Jesus makes a reservation for you in heaven, nobody can cancel that reservation. It's never going to go out of date. I can put it this way. When you get on, friend, the good ship of grace, you're on the good ship of grace. You may fall down a thousand times on that ship of grace, but praise God, you're preserved in Jesus Christ. That means you ain't never going to fall off that ship of grace. You're there for the duration. Your reservation has been made. It's not going to be canceled. It's not going to be nullified. It's not going to be voided. If you stumble over the rock of temptation, Christian, Jesus is going to lift you up. If you fall into the pit of sin, Jesus is going to lift you out. If we were to lose our salvation, now get this, I know a lot of people have trouble with eternal security. This you need to grasp. It's all about God. It's all about Him and about His preserving power. Not about us. Now listen to me. If we were to lose our salvation, folks, it would not be our fault. It would be His fault. Now God does not have any faults. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now understand, what Jude is doing here, Christian, he's not giving us an insurance policy. No, he's giving us an assurance policy. Now it's a big difference. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't give you insurance to, to replace your salvation in case you lose it. He gives you assurance of the fact that you'll never lose your salvation to begin with. Not only does salvation begin with God calling you, but it ends with God keeping you. I can show you a verse here. Look at verse 24. Jude, verse 24. It says, Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. It doesn't say now unto you who's able to keep you from falling or unto the church who's able to keep you from falling or unto this denomination or unto good works that's able to keep you from falling. No, it says unto Him that's able to keep you from falling. You realize it's all based on Him. Not you, not me. Not anything we do. It's what He's done. 
Now let me give you another passage. In the <coughs> First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved. There's the same word that's used in Jude, verse 1. Be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Again, it's all about Him. Now, I love this. I'm going to close here for tonight. In verse 2, what Jude does, he just puts a cherry on top of the, the, the banana split, if you will. Marsh is gone, so you know where I'm headed after church tonight. Uh, he puts a cherry on top of the whipped cream for us. Look at verse 2. He says, Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Now, let me ask you something. Why do you think he picked those particular blessings? Mercy, peace, and love. Well, I want you to think about this. Mercy takes care of our upward relationship toward God. Peace takes care of our inward relationship with self. And love takes care of our outward relationship with others. In other words, let me put it this way, Christian. When you or I, when we're sinful, God, God multiplies His mercy. When we're sorrowful, God multiplies His peace. When we're shameful, God multiplies His love. Now I ask you, what else could anybody want? What else do we need? Listen now, Christian, you are guided by spiritual light. God called you. Now I'm talking about eternal security. The fact that if you're saved, you are saved. You're not going to be unsaved. If you're truly a child of God, you're going to maintain, you're going to stay a child of God. Because you're guided by spiritual light. God called you. You're governed by sovereign love. You are God's beloved. And you, friend, are guarded by saving life. You're preserved in, for, by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Now, if that ain't security, I don't know what is. Would you bow your heads, please?